This is a download from BFM 89.9, the business station. Good afternoon. This is Earth Matters on The Bigger Picture. I'm Juliet Jacobs. It's another episode of Biodiversity for Malaysia, our monthly series which aims to get everyone on the same page when it comes to all things biodiversity related, especially on issues surrounding the Convention on Biological Diversity post-2020 framework process, the 30 by 30 target and more. As we've been discussing over the past few months on this series, there has been little progress on negotiations for a new post-2020 global biodiversity framework. So talks in Geneva in March had little progress and the recently convened talks in Nairobi in June was said to have had only two clear wins. There is particular interest in Target 3, the so-called 30 by 30 target, which looks to protect 30% of the world's land and oceans by 2030. But recent interventions by many countries, including Malaysia, have resulted in a somewhat confused situation. So we're going to keep up our discussion on this topic. And today I'm joined by Julian Hyde, the General Manager of ReefCheck Malaysia, Jim Gamble, who is the Arctic Program Director for the NGO Pacific Environment, and also Masha Kalinina. She is the Senior Officer for Conservation Support at the Pew Charitable Trusts. And together we're going to be discussing how we can actually achieve that 30 by 30 target. Welcome everyone. How are you today? Good morning, Julia. All good. Good morning. Yep. Thanks for having us. Yeah, indeed. Happy to be here. Thank you. Thank you so much for joining me, everyone. So Julian, of course, is our uh, constant collaborator on this series. But for Jim and Masha, maybe we can get to know the both of you a little bit better and the work that you guys do through your respective organizations. Jim, can we start off with a quick introduction uh, to Pacific Environment and the work that you guys do? Yeah, thanks very much, Juliet. Happy to. Uh, Pacific Environment, as you mentioned, is a U.S.-based uh, uh, non-governmental organization. Uh, we work, however, in the international sphere quite extensively, so uh, both through biodiversity, but also through ocean issues related to shipping at the International Maritime Organization. Uh, we work on climate at the COP, and so uh, our main work is really from a global perspective. And so, for instance, I'll just elaborate a little bit by saying that uh, I'm Arctic Program Director, but our work on MPAs is all sort of interconnected globally. And so uh, while I, I do work extensively on Arctic issues, uh, work on MPAs, is, for instance, in the Southeast Asia region is interconnected. And so it sort of makes sense for me to continue my geographic scope to include all of that. So Pacific Environment, small organization, global reach, and uh, really working on protecting uh, the Earth's wild places. Mm -hmm. Thanks. And, and I've been reading that, you know, for the last 30 years or so, you guys have been building networks amongst uh, grassroots activists, right, and organizations. Uh, you know, there's a special focus on pushing those in power to listen to local voices. I think that's something we've been discussing on this series as well, the importance of uh, uh, the voices of Indigenous peoples and local communities, IPLCs, right? Um, can you talk to me a little bit about how you guys strengthen grassroots activism, well, I guess in the name of biodiversity? Yeah, absolutely. And, and what you've hit on there is a really, really important part of all this. And that is that um, in order for these systems to work, in order, order for us to properly protect uh, uh, biodiversity, to, to property, properly protect uh, wild places, we, it, it really has to be in collaboration with, with local communities. Um, local communities have the knowledge of the region. Oftentimes, local communities being indigenous peoples who, who have traditional or indigenous knowledge uh, that maybe goes back many generations. And so um, without that key piece that includes communities and local groups, the systems just simply don't work as well. And so at PE, uh, one of the things that, that I've always really appreciated about the organization is this community perspective, this idea of 
of uh, raising up community voices, of listening to community priorities and helping to, by extension, uh, make those priorities our own. Um, that is a key piece of all this and, and really important to, the, to its success. Okay, excellent. Thanks so much, Jim. And uh, Marsha, maybe you can uh, join in now. Can you tell us a little bit about the Pew Charitable Trusts and tell us a little bit about the work that you do? Of course, happy to come in on that. And I'll also chime in on the engagement of IPLCs. I think that's such a critical point. So um, I represent a relatively large organization based out of Washington, D.C., and we have a variety of activities that aren't actually exclusively focused on environment protection and conservation. But when it comes to the environment, some of the activities we're involved with are establishing marine protected areas in partnership with governments and indigenous people and local communities all over the world. Uh, we work to uh, end pollution and with a large focus on plastics. And, you know, and of course, it's a huge impact on the ocean. We work to eliminate harmful subsidies, in, in especially with respect to fisheries. We are um, working with several governments to help incorporate key ecosystems like mangroves into nationally determined contributions under the climate agreement, um, and, and really much, much more. So my job is to engage with the Convention on Biological Diversity. And I, there's a special focus within that on what is now target three, and that is protecting and conserving at least 30% of the ocean by 2030. And the last thing I'll say is that with respect to indigenous engagement, one example of many was that we were really lucky enough to support um, a representative from Hawaii Solomon Kahoa Halahala, who represents an organization called KUA or KUA, to Nairobi just last month to attend the CBD negotiations and to share his you know, wisdom and knowledge with us and government representatives. So that's just one example of partnership and collaboration. Okay, essentially, I think uh, everyone here in this group is facing that triple planetary crisis, right? So we're talking climate change, pollution, biodiversity loss, everything is linked. So these are the sorts of things that you guys are working on. And Julian, maybe you can help explain how it is that you guys are collaborating and uh, what it is that you guys are working on together. Sure. We we were approached by originally by uh, Pacific Environment, but obviously in collaboration with Pew, to be a local voice. Um, in Malaysia to try and raise awareness of um, biodiversity issues. I think it's still it's still quite low. It's getting better, but the, the whole biodiversity issue is still second cousin to climate change, for example. Um, and so we were engaged to raise awareness of biodiversity here, but also to speak more directly to the relevant government decision makers about this target three, the 30 by 30 target, which is, which is causing so much um, confusion and consternation. Uh, so we were trying to get the government here, try, trying to persuade the government to, to, to look at the target, see how it works nationally, what, what, what the issues are nationally, and how Malaysia can contribute to that target, which, as the target says, is a global target. Um, but I think there was some misunderstanding of, of the precise meaning of what, what, what the target's asking for. Uh, so to try and 
um, get a raise awareness of what the 30% target means, uh, how it relates to Malaysia and what Malaysia's best strategy should be to strengthening marine protection. Because as Jim said earlier on, at the end of the day, the target is a tool to improving marine protection and improving or increasing the amount of uh, ocean that is in protected areas. And so we're looking down the road, it's uh, okay, we've agreed the target. Now, how do we actually achieve that? Uh, and, and that's what we have some some background in in Malaysia, looking at you know in, in getting involved in involving local communities. There they are again in the management of marine resources um, in a lot of our marine protected areas, uh, where uh, it's something that needs to be strengthened. Mm-hmm. Okay, uh, let's just go for one quick break, guys. When we come back, let's talk about let's break it down again. You know, for anyone who's new to this concept, the thirty by thirty target and all of that. I'm speaking today to Julian Hyde, general manager of Reef Check Malaysia, Jim Gamble, the Arctic program director from Pacific Environment, and Marsha Kalidina, a senior officer for conservation support with the Pew Charitable Trust. It's another episode of Biodiversity for Malaysia. We're talking, I suppose, you know, the long and winding road that's leading us to COP15 in Canada at the end of the year. Well, we'll get there. Um, and we'll have more after this quick break. You're listening to Earth Matters on The Bigger Picture, BFM 89.9. Welcome back. This is Earth Matters on The Bigger Picture. I'm Juliet Jacobs. Joining me today are Julian Hyde, the General Manager of ReefCheck Malaysia, Jim Gamble, the Arctic Programme Director at Pacific Environment, and Masha Kalinina, a Senior Officer for Conservation Support at the Pew Charitable Trust. It's another episode of Biodiversity for Malaysia, our ongoing series which wants to get everyone on the same page when it comes to all things biodiversity-related in particular on issues surrounding the Convention on Biological Diversity post-2020 framework process. So, uh, you know, as as you guys were talking about, you know, we just had those talks very recently in uh, Nairobi. Um, you know, the, some few people that I spoke to said, you know, it felt like um, nothing much was achieved there. It felt almost like Groundhog Day there. That was some a quote somebody said. It was Groundhog Day in Nairobi. Um, but let's, let's talk about that a little bit later. For now, can we just get some uh, definitions out of the way? Uh, who'd like to take this? What is, uh, can you tell us what the 30 by 30 target is about? Jim, maybe you want to take this? All right. Um, So the 30 by 30 target is, um, you could explain it in a number of ways. It's based on a lot of science that says that that this global target is what we need in order to achieve uh, conservation goals that will be effective for the planet. But, you know, really, when you drill down uh, to the very base of it, as Julian mentioned, the 30 by 30 target is a tool. uh, And what that tool is trying to achieve is protecting the world's last intact places, last intact ecosystems. And and those places, those ecosystems are critical to the survival of our planet. And so the idea is to put those protections in place uh, really before it's too late. There's a a timeliness to this. And and that timeliness really says we must act quickly. And the the quicker we act, the greater our chance for success. So... Uh, in a nutshell, that's 30 by 30. Mm-hmm. And uh, why, maybe you can help elaborate, you know, why this target is so, so important uh, for the whole world, basically. Yeah. So so what we've seen, what we've found in a number of examples, and 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 I could quote examples from the Arctic, but, but really there's places everywhere where we see enormous benefits um, when we safeguard certain parts of our planet for nature. And so what happens when we do that is that biodiversity begins to thrive. So in other words, the the living creatures of of these places begin to do better. Uh, And and so uh, things like fish stocks begin to recover. And, And so um, given how much humanity really depends on nature, and and not just for for food, but for but but for the very air we breathe, the the water we have to drink, um, 
making our climate a livable one. And we're seeing examples of what happens when our climate becomes less livable right at this very moment. So, so um, there's so many things about uh, the livability of our planet. They're dependent on, on strong and healthy biodiversity. And so um, really, again, you know, if you drill it right down to the very basis in, in terms of what it means for humanity, uh, healthy, protected ecosystems are essential for our survival. And, and that's why we're working so hard to uh, achieve this target. Mm-hmm. And Masha, anything you wanted to add to what Jim has just said? I think Jim has sort of hit the nail on the head here. Yeah, because time is of the essence. And really, the 30% is the bare minimum we, we need in order to see the, the benefits that Jim's covered. Mm-hmm. So we got to do it as quickly as possible. And 30% globally is, is really the floor here. So um, that's why we think that it, it, it is achievable and, and the target um, is reasonable and it's urgent. Okay. And, and broadly speaking, right, who, who are in support of this target? You know, I mean, there, there are different, I suppose, some people say that it's an unachievable sort of uh, target, but, you know, there is, of course, such urgency for it. Maybe we can talk about, yeah, the folks who are supporting this particular target. So we have over 100 countries which are supporting both land and ocean 30 by 30 conservation and it's really remarkable uh, the success of this um, kind of ambition so far. When you just focus on 30 by 30 in the ocean, that is over 120 countries mm-hmm. that have lent their support. So some of the major leaders behind the various coalitions, and I'm, I'm happy to get to that next, are France, the UK, Costa Rica, Seychelles, India, the US, Canada, and and many others. So that's just, you know, a sampling because it is really a diverse group of countries that even early on began to advocate for this target, not just from the developed world, but also um, developing economies. Okay. All right. And um, there are two government-led coalitions, am I correct, that are advocating for the target? Can you tell us about those? Of course. So the first coalition I'll share with you is known as the High Ambition Coalition for Nature and People, HACK, as we lovingly call it. (laughs) And that is co-led by France, Costa Rica, and the UK government, and what um, the second coalition is, is known as the Global Ocean Alliance, and that is led by the UK. And they sort of developed in parallel and, and now have overlapping missions. And so that's why the UK is playing such an important part in the High Ambition Coalition, just to make sure that there are synergies. And uh, as you can imagine, for, for some countries, it may be easier first to support the marine ambition because terrestrially you know these are the places where we live and you may be a small island nation or uh, in other words big ocean state as we sometimes like to say um, that does not have a lot of land territory so sometimes you need a little time to understand what the target is on land and and how to achieve it but uh, ultimately, as we've said, these are global targets, uh, and you know, Julian alluded to this. So uh, that means 
Some countries will protect more, especially if they are very large uh, in terms of their terrestrial, you know, potential protected areas. Yeah. Or if they're big ocean states, they may do more in the ocean than um, areas with small coastal areas or no ocean areas at all. Um, so, yeah, those are the two main coalitions. Okay. And, you know, in terms of Malaysia, uh, maybe Julian, you want to take that? Why is it that Malaysia, we've spoken about this, but it's good to remind folks, why should Malaysia support this target? You know, what exactly would Malaysia be committing itself to achieving uh, if we support this? Right. I, th- I think that's a critical question because it's that is right there that I think a lot of the misunderstandings are occurring. Let me put it this way. The 30% of oceans protected is, is a global target. That means globally we need to protect 30%. But as, as has become clear through discussions uh, over the last few weeks for me with a, with a whole variety of people, that doesn't mean that each nation has to protect 30% of its bit of the ocean, right? Um, we're all agreeing, so let's call it an aspiration. 30% is a, is a, is a global aspiration. Uh, and and as a, just let me emphasize one thing, which I think Masha mentioned, it's scientifically supported. It's not, somebody didn't say, well, let's protect a third. You know, that third sounds good. 30% is scientifically sound. Okay. So, so that's a, that's a hard target. So let's protect 30% of the oceans globally. Of course we should do that because we need to protect these ecosystems that, as Jim said, produce our oxygen, fresh water, our food. They're critical. We look after them. So Malaysia, why not, why not support that global ambition, that aspiration, but then say, okay, what can we do locally, realistically? Where are our key ecosystems, coastal, deep water? Where are these things that we need to look at? How much mangrove, how much seagrass, how much coral reef uh, is there out there? Where is it? What condition is it in? And then what do we do locally as best practice to look after our ecosystems, which we need best uh, looked after best in order for uh, our food security to be in place, to manage coastal erosion from greater storms for climate change. We've got plastic issues and so on and so forth. So where are the critical ecosystems that Malaysia needs to look at and what's our plan to protect those? So that's kind of what we're saying is the the global ambition, that's great, it's a good idea, sign up for that, and then have a good, strong, solid science-based plan for protecting ecosystems here in Malaysia. And why not work with Thailand? Because (laughs) the corals don't understand borders, Right. So when you cross the border from Malaysia into Thailand, it's not, oh, we have different species of coral there. Uh, you know, Indonesia, Philippines, we all share the South China Sea. We all share a moving resource. So why not do some work locally as well? Mm-hmm. And uh, maybe, Jim, you want to take this, right? So let's look at a place like Malaysia, right? What safeguards could be put in place to ensure that we, you know, and with the lack of capacity and resources, we are a developing nation, will not be overburdened by adopting this target? Yeah, and and I'll just say that I I would definitely want Julian to chime in on this as well. But but I think the thing that I would say is that um, Malaysia, for one thing, I think at the top, Malaysia needs to build alliances with with key donor countries. I mean, the countries that Masha uh, uh, mentioned are are strongly supporting the target and supporting uh, the protection of these ecosystems generally. Um, they also have have committed to to supporting uh, developing economies in achieving the same goal. So, for instance, as Masha mentioned, France, the UK, Germany, the US, Canada, Norway is another one that that has strongly committed to this, and others. They are making these commitments, and so this can happen 
uh, for a country like Malaysia by joining the global coalitions that Masha told us about. So for instance, the, the High Ambition Coalition and the Global Ocean Alliance. So many of these donors have expressed these financial commitments through these coalitions. And the idea, of course, at the end of the day is to make the 30 by 30 target a reality. And I'll also just mention this, that because of the sort of the scope of this, it's a big job. It's, yeah. it's, a, it's a lot to ask, particularly of developing economies. What we're seeing is that some really interesting new uh, financial tools are being developed to, to really to address this very thing in prioritizing 30 by 30. And, and so joining this sort of push um, could really help Malaysia gain access to all of this. And I'll mention just one. And I would also uh, want Masha to chime in on this because she she's quite close to this. But but one that we've seen is an organization called Enduring Earth. And this is quite a new partnership that is strongly focused on a sort of operationalizing uh, these protections. So in other words, you, you need resources and funds in order to to sort of implement them and, and make them happen initially. But you also need resources in order to maintain them sort of for the long term. And that's, I think, exactly what Enduring Earth is about. And and again, um, I think it'd be great if Masha talked a bit more about that as well. And maybe I'll stop right there and let her chime in. Sure. Go ahead, Masha. Yeah. Thanks, Jim. Thanks, Julia. You know, I couldn't have said it better myself. Uh, and just to add a little more detail, Enduring Earth uh, was just a officially launched over the summer and it is a collaboration between the Pew Charitable Trusts, World Wildlife Fund, the Nature Conservancy, and um, some some other critical donors. Zoma Lab is a is a partner, and the the idea is to um, support protected and conserved areas in perpetuity. So to establish financial mechanisms that not only provide the funding, but also create, for example, a board of directors that is um, made up of different actors and players, not just government, not just donors, but also those community leaders. And um, that means that the management isn't um, in flux with the change of administration, right? And the decisions to fund or de-gazette don't lie with the government, but with the special management uh, scheme established under this partnership. And there are five countries that already have active, um, it's called Project uh, Finance for Permanence, PFPs, uh, and uh, Bhutan is one example, Costa Rica has a PFP. And so um, this is really a key to unlocking some of the critical resources that we need to, um, you know, ensure we reach 30 by 30. And uh, maybe I'll turn over to Julian, if you want to add anything just about like the importance of domestic commitments too, you know, it's not just about global money. Yeah, thanks, Masha. Uh, Just let me mention the Enduring Earth thing. Um, I was looking at the uh, annual reports of the Great Barrier Reef Marine Park Authority just recently, and their their budget, their operating budget is in the hundreds of uh, the tens of millions of uh, Australian dollars. So that's the hundreds of millions of Malaysian ringgit. Um, So looking after protected areas is expensive. New sources of funding like Enduring Earth could provide a a relatively simple way to bring private sector finance in because we're not asking, we're not going to set up a whole new set of MPAs who's going to say, here's some money for managing this set of MPAs. So take an island like Pulatiaman, um, set it up as like a, in, in this system so that the funding comes in from externally and all we have to do is hit this set of conservation targets. And I think 
this links to what Mash was saying, because look, we need to decide what we want to do locally. How are we going to manage our marine protected areas? Um, the topic of IPLCs, Indigenous people and local communities, has been mentioned a couple of times this morning. For me, that's something that, first of all, emerged very strongly out of the Geneva and Nairobi talks. It was something that people were looking for to strengthen. And I think it, that's mirrored in Malaysia. Uh, I can see the, the relevant government agencies are increasingly saying, yeah, local people, what are we going to do with them? Uh, and our own program that we're operating with Department of Fisheries, Reef Care, it's a DOF program. It's it's not reef. It's not ours. There's too many reefs involved here. It's not us. It's the government, the Department of Fisheries, that says we're going to implement this program called Reef Care, and it's about giving some responsibility to the local community to look after their resources. See, bundle all of this together, and you've got a stronger target requiring more protection, involving local petite people, and a recognition that some external funding might just be a useful thing to bind all of this together and make it work. So would you say at the moment it's more piecemeal? So what we need was a more sort of cohesive sort of approach in terms of financing, in terms of um, supporting these sorts of targets, because now it's not quite there yet? I think the ma management itself is not piecemeal because all of the MPAs, all of our marine parks are managed by either the Department of Fisheries or, or Sava Parks and Sarawak Forestry. So the management is in place, the system is in place. What is perhaps piecemeal is local action to make those uh, marine parks more effective mm -hmm. and get better conservation results out of them. So if you have an NGO working on one field that's particularly strong in X topic, then that will be the focus there. Then you'll go to a different island, maybe they're looking at turtles, maybe another island's looking at seagrass. So they're all doing slightly different things. Can we find a way to integrate these, but also get mangroves involved, get seagrasses involved? You know, Juliet, you know, you've talked with uh, people looking at seagrasses. We often forget that we get very focused on coral reefs, but hey, we need all of the coastal ecosystems involved. So the mangroves linked to the seagrasses, linked to the coral reefs. We need to look at that holistically. Mm -hmm. So the funding is incredibly important. Okay. I'll just add one one more thing. And this this is, I think, true of Malaysia, but I think it's important to uh, to recognize it, it's true everywhere. And that is that it's it's important that all of the stakeholders, so that, that's government, that's local communities, that's uh, academia, everybody who potentially might be involved, it's really important that they recognize that there is uh, incredible benefits that are derived from, from this kind of protection. And so in other words, it's, you know, one way to look at it is that you're spending capital, you're, you're spending funding that, that could be used elsewhere to develop and maintain these, these protected area systems. But the benefits that you derive from doing that, you know, the, the healthier fish stocks, better ecosystem services, you know, for everyone, um, it's hard to put a dollar value on that. And so, you know, oftentimes we, we, we find that we add up the, the, you know, these initial costs and say, oh, it's too expensive. But in reality, if you could derive the benefits that you're going to receive, I, I think it makes the equation a lot more, uh, a lot more strongly in favor of, of the protection and, and what it'll provide to, to all the communities. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's a problem, you know, with developing nations and developing economies, isn't it? You're looking at how you can uh, utilize those resources rather than protect it. And that, that's always a constant problem. But yeah, you're right. That's something that we definitely need to look into. And I just want to talk a little bit about the, uh, the, the ongoing discussion. So, I mean, yes, we had Nairobi and uh, I think one of the 
clearest sort of uh, outcomes from that was, of course, that finally we have, you know, something's going to happen in Canada at the end of the year, you know, after all this uh, postponements and all of that. But one of the problems uh, appears to be that parties are arguing about words, you know, in these uh, sorts of negotiations, you know, paragraphs and, and all that, you know, brackets, all these sorts of things come out um, and perhaps losing sight of the goal. Uh, how do you think we can overcome this, um, Jim? Yeah, sure. I'll, I'll jump in and just say that. Um, so I, I think the important question is, how do we overcome this? I think we all sort of see the symptoms of what's happening. And and I'll, I'll just mention a couple of things that I, I think would be really useful. One of the things that we find is that the folks that are attending the meetings um, sometimes don't really have the authority to make the decisions in place. And so what you end up having is uh, having to refer back to capital, having to wait for decisions about text formulations, and and just it's a process that that sort of slows everything down. And so I guess one potential solution to that is that the highest possible level of representatives for the various ministries involved, Ministry of the Environment, Foreign Affairs, uh, maybe even finance ministries, they should be present at the COP. Um, they should be there so that the that this ongoing uh, discussion can result in timely decisions. And um, at this level of discussion, oftentimes what's happening, what we're trying to do is we're, we're trying to develop consensus based positions. Right. Mm -hmm. So and, the, you know, the, the joke about a consensus decision is it's one that nobody loves and nobody hates. <laughs> uh, you know, an, another way you can sometimes put it is, is it's a decision that nobody likes, uh, but it's the decision that they that governments are able to come to. But if you don't have negotiators in the room with the authority to make the decisions about what is consensus in order to finalize a clean set of targets, in order to finalize clean language, the process just gets extended on and on and on. And so I guess um, if it always boiled down to, to one simple thing, it would be send the highest level of authority you possibly can to these meetings and that those folks are prepared to actually make these decisions and achieve this consensus. Yeah, and it wouldn't just be the department or the Ministry of Environment. Like you said, it would be the finance ministry. There's so many other, uh, you know, departments and, and ministries that need to come into this because it's very, very high level uh, decisions. Uh, Masha, is there anything you wanted to add to that? I guess I would only add is um, that we have seen a lot of good examples from the UNFCCC space, from the Paris Climate Agreement that was reached. And that was given really high profile attention. And I live in the United States, so I'm going to give a U.S. example. But John Kerry was an instrumental figure in, in those negotiations. And I think that's something we're missing in the CBD context, that level of engagement, which is what Jim was alluding to. So I, I just think lessons learned from UNFCCC would be the only thing I'd add. Okay. All right. And uh, what what would you say needs to be done now to arrive at a final version of Target 3 and, and I suppose all the other targets in the post-2020 uh, global biodiversity framework? Is it that? Is it that all these high-level folks need to come together and just really hammer it out? Well, so that's one piece. And certainly we would love to see that for Malaysia as well, that, that high-level engagement. I think that we can have smaller groupings of countries meet intercessionally, which is currently the plan as far as officially what the COP Bureau is actually deciding on, I think this week, uh, how that 
regional small grouping representation will look, which countries will be a part of that conversation. And, and um, it's not 100% clear what they'll do with the language they agree on. I um, think they'll produce some informal documents for consideration, but the idea is to produce something that could then be presented to ministers for, and, and it's digestible. Right now, everybody agrees the text is so long and just heavy that really, I mean, I don't understand what <laughs> it means and I'm in the room in the negotiation. So, um, and then the last thing, you know, I would say that we need public attention here placed on these negotiations. I mean, in some sense, this may even be more important than the climate discussions, I think, because it touches on the loss of biodiversity we see and feel and we can touch in our own community, in our own backyard, right? And um, it's really just the other side of the coin to the climate conversation. So bringing public attention in Malaysia and throughout the ASEAN region to these negotiations is the other key piece to getting it done. Okay. All right. And uh, Jim, anything you wanted to add to that? Just that I really agree. And especially all of it is really important. I think the, the, the part about sort of public attention and public awareness of this is maybe key in a lot of ways because, you know, public sort of attention and public opinion, you know, being um, communicated to a country's leaders, you know, that's how sometimes leadership can decide to make a decision because they're hearing from their population that this is important. This is something we want to see addressed. So I, I, I just to emphasize that last bit, I think it's really important. Mm-hmm. And, and Julian, maybe you can take this last final one. Uh, what could the Malaysian government contribute to this process? Let me just comment on, on the language thing. Uh, I was talking to some friends in, uh, in government positions uh, just last week, and look at one aspect of, of what we're talking about here, which is getting local communities involved in management, co-management, participatory management, whatever you want to call it. But whatever we tried to call it, we couldn't find a way to translate it into Bahasa Malaysia, ah, right? Okay. It doesn't translate well. It comes out every time, every time you try, it comes out as what you would translate back as co-management. And that's a phrase that scares some government people because it's handing over a lot of responsibility. Participatory management, sure, we can do that. That's easy to do. It's within the existing institutional structure. But co-management, ooh. So we can't even translate it ourselves. (laughs) So now you're going to go to COP. You've got 100 odd nations. You're all trying to agree on the difference between protection and conservation. I don't know the difference. And then you're going to take those back into a native language and native culture. So the language is incredibly important. I think we need to simplify it. And I think if we could simplify it, then there is a greater chance that the Malaysian government would be able to sign on with confidence that they know exactly what it is they're signing up for. Let's make it a little bit less muddy that the 30% target is a global aspiration. It is not a national target. I haven't actually seen that written down anywhere in any formal official communication of CBD. 30% is not a national target. It's a global target. So let's clarify that. And then the Malaysian government can climb on board and say, with confidence, okay, yes, we agree to the 30%, but this is our plan. Our, you know, work out the plan, put the measurements in it, put the KPIs in it, put a budget on it, put responsibilities on it, say, that's our goal for the next, uh, what have we got now, eight years through to 2030. 
And that is what we're going to achieve by that time. And let's look long term. Let's stop looking three months down the line, six months down the line. We need someone who's brave enough to say, we need an eight-year plan. Oh, Malaysia has a five-year planning system, right? Every Masha and Jim probably don't know this, but we have a five-year plan. Uh, The current one is 21 to 25. So let's say that by the time we get around to the the next Malaysia plan, 13th, I think it will be, we will have a goal to, by 2030, we will have set up X number of MPAs, strengthened the management, covered this much of our EZ, whatever it wants to be, whatever the target is, but get engaged in that process over a long term. Well, thank you so much, everyone, uh, for joining me today. I've been speaking to Julian Hyde, General Manager of Reef Check Malaysia, Jim Gamble, Arctic Program Director at Pacific Environment, and Marsha Kalinina, Senior Officer for Conservation Support at the Pew Charitable Trusts. If you'd like to find out more about their respective organisations, you can head to reefcheck.org.my for, for Julian's. You can head to pacificenvironment.org for Jim's. And you can head to pewtrust.org to find out what Marsha is working on. And if you want to find out more about the CBD, just head to C cbd.int for more information on that. And if you miss any part of our conversation today, you can always download the podcast at bfm.my slash earth or you can find it on the BFM app. This has been Earth Matters on The Bigger Picture, BFM 89.9. Thank you for listening to this podcast. To find more great interviews, go to bfm.my or find us on iTunes. BFM 89.9, The Business Station.